This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Official Telerik podcast. I'm your host Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Craig Stunts. How you doing, Craig? I'm well. Thanks for talking to me this evening. And Craig, you're uh, with Improving, and we're here at Star Trek 2017. Uh, looking forward to the event tomorrow morning. Uh, very much so. It's uh, the most interesting venue I think I've spoken in of late. Um, I just I walked into and looked at the arena as they're setting it up with the partitions. Um, between the the different spaces where people are going to talk, and um, it'll be an adventure. Yeah. So, uh, what what topic are you talking about tomorrow? Uh, my talk is called High Speed Bug Discovery with Fuzzing, and it's about software fuzzing, which is a technique for finding bugs in could be an individual function or an entire system or an operating system kernel. Uh, so. Uh, this is the type of thing uh, I usually hear people talking about application security. So is, is that what you're talking about, is app security? So I'm not talking about app security. It is, fuzzing is a technique that essentially everybody in the application security community knows about um, because it is very effective at finding defects in systems. And within the security, uh, the penetration testing and the, the AppSec community, a single bug is uh, sometimes enough to break into a system, which is what they're after. Um, in the, the software development space, um, it is less known. I gave a talk at CodeMesh 2017 called Mashing Up QA and Security, um, the thesis of which was that uh, people in the development community and the security community and the and the uh, uh, the QA space should talk to each other more because we use different words and different techniques and it's valuable to know about these techniques but uh, at the beginning of that talk I asked the people who who you know self-selected to to come to a talk on on QA and security um, how many people had heard of fuzzing as a technique and I think a little less than half of the people raised their hands and I asked how many people had used AFL which is maybe one of the most popular fuzzers and I think one hand went up, one or two. Um, and it, it was clear that the technique could use some PR, so I want to let people know how it works, um, what it does. And I also have some fun stories. I've been writing my own fuzzer, um, and it, it gets you into some some areas of software development that um, are, are places that I hadn't gone before, so that that's a lot of fun as well. So you've said a couple interesting things, the first one being that uh, you know, usually this stuff is used for security, and from from what I'm getting is, uh, you know, the bugs that these fuzzers find are usually the exploit that's used to begin hacking. Right? Is that correct? Um, it is often the case that, that that is true. So if you are fuzzing a um, program that's written in an unmanaged language, and you can get it to um, use, uh, you know, do a memory overwrite or read uninitialized memory, then that is often sufficient to, um, you know, to, to get code execution in a system. So, yes, that is true. But you're approaching it from a perspective of uh, not only security, but that's a bug, and any bug is unwanted. So we're going to use these fuzzing tools to flush out just bugs in general. 
Yeah, and, and this is part of, um, I, I tend to work in managed languages. I do a lot of C-sharp and F-sharp and Java and, and JavaScript and other programming. Um, so when you work in a managed language, it is highly uncommon to find uh, you know, a use-after-free or a memory overwrite. So that, that kind of bug that, that fuzzers tend to be um, so good at finding is, is not something I've been able to uncover in, in, in fuzzing managed code. But um, you can still look for other kinds of defects. So when you, I mean, maybe we should just talk for a moment about how a fuzzer works. Um, sure. Okay. So the, 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 general, the general idea is you have a system under test, which could be a single function, but more commonly it's a whole application. And you will have some inputs to that system under test. Uh, these are often files. So if you think of like a command line program that might resize an image, it might take images as its input. Um, or the Adobe Flash Player takes Flash movies as its input. Um, so you're going to amass a collection of these inputs, which we call a corpus, and you will feed them through the system under test. And then you will verify some property. Um, so when you're fuzzing for security purposes, the property that you're verifying is that the software doesn't crash. Because it do, if it does crash, you, you might well have found a memory override bug. Okay? But um, when it, it, I, I have found that when I fuzz.net code, um, it doesn't tend to crash with memory overrides, which isn't surprising because it's a memory managed environment. Um, but there are other interesting properties that I can verify. So. Um, for example, I've been fuzzing json.net, um, which is deserializing json, and it, I have never managed to induce a memory error in json.net, but what I do find is that I can compare the behavior of json.net with a, um, a json validator and say, are there cases where json.net um, does not, you know, reports an error deserializing JSON that is in fact valid. And that, that's sort of interesting. Um, JSON.NET is for good reason considered a, a high quality piece of software and so it's not easy to find, um, you know, you could call them defects, some of them are by design, but it, it's interesting to compare what the JSON specifications allow and what JSON.NET will accept. Yeah. Um, now, you, you would think of that that this type of thing would be in unit testing uh, in the library, but the way you're approaching it is much different. Uh, so you may find things that unit tests weren't covering. So that, I find that very interesting. Yeah. Um, so when we, you know, we can ask why do we write unit tests? You know, one reason is to guide the design of our software. Another reason is to prevent regressions. And when we're fuzzing, we, we're, we're going for something different. Um, if I run a unit test a hundred times, I'm probably not going to find any new bugs. Probably, you know, hopefully I'll get the same results on the hundredth time that I did on the first. Because in a unit test, I'm taking you know one or two examples. Um, whereas when I'm fuzzing, I'm trying to create new examples that the system under test hasn't seen before, and I'm using profile guidance to attempt to, by altering the input, I'm attempting to find new areas of the code that haven't been previously exercised and try and push the execution into new areas in the system. So unit tests, you know, they're designed to run quickly because you might be running them on every compile or maybe even more frequently. Um, 
Whereas with fuzzing, I might spend weeks on hundreds or thousands of cores, um, trying many, many different inputs to the system, um, mutating that input and watching the, the flow of execution as the system under test executes and trying to find new areas of code that I haven't, that I haven't been in before. So uh, where does this process fit in then um, if we're doing something that's outside of unit testing, mm -hmm. like uh, how do we justify the time and stuff like that? Where does it fit in the whole development process? Sure. So, so why, why do we care about, um, you know, about testing at all? We, we can think of what, why do we test? So one reason that we test is to verify that the system under test does what it's supposed to. We could ask, does it meet its specification? Um, another reason that we test is to prevent regressions. We test to help guide the design of our software. And finally, we, we look for bugs. And in contrast to verifying the specification where we're making sure that the software does do what it's intended to do, when we're looking for bugs, what we're doing is asking, does the software do anything that it isn't intended to do? Um, so where, in terms of where this fits, um, it's not really a design tool. Um, it's not really a tool to prevent regressions because unit tests already do that very well and they're fast. Um, we're really looking at when we have a system that we think is stable, we want to stress it as much as possible and say, can we induce bad behavior in the system by sending it inputs we didn't expect? So any, in any case where we expect that the system under test in use is going to um, see inputs that are exponentially more diverse than we can test. So some examples here. Um, when we talk about like maybe a compiler, right? So you, you can write a compiler and you can test the compiler, but the programs that people will send the compiler in the real world are just, you know, there's thousands, millions, billions more programs than you will be able to test when you're testing it. Um, and, you know, as a rule, people give compilers invalid input. That's, that's why we use the compilers, to reject invalid code. Um, you know, maybe one time out of ten, we're, we're producing an executable. Um, so we, we really count on the compilers to, um, first of all, not crash, and maybe even more importantly, um, we expect the compilers to generate correct code. So one really interesting use of fuzzing is... Um, a team at the University of Utah um, spent uh, about a year and less than a thousand dollars and they discovered hundreds of bugs in production C, C and C++ compilers. Um, they, 25 of the bugs they discovered in GCC were classified as release blocking, which is the most severe category of bug in GCC. Um, and essentially what they did is they um, used a smart fuzzer to generate uh, semi-random C programs and compared the output of the compilers against each other in terms of the behavior of the system and they were able to find when the compilers they tested diverged in behavior and from that they were able to find cogen bugs. And if you think about it, a cogen bug is about the worst thing that you can have from a compiler. Like, it's bad when they report an error on something that's not erroneous, but to silently produce incorrect code is just essentially it's it's the end of the world.
Yeah, and I, I can imagine that, you know, the stuff that you're talking about, the criticality of finding the bugs, uh, depends a lot on what the application's being used for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're writing an application that's going on, like, the space station or into healthcare or banking, you don't want to have bugs in those type of applications. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not talking about maybe a game that might crash on somebody, but something that might cost our company you know, millions of dollars if a satellite goes careening into the surface of Mars instead of orbiting where it's supposed to, right? Yeah, I think part of the reason that fuzzing is maybe better known in the security community is that they, they really care very much about, about bugs in the system. Um, so it, it is worth the effort of, like, um, for example, uh, Google uh, in 2011 um, mined flash movies off the public internet and then spent a month on 2,000 cores fuzzing the Adobe Flash Player. And they found something like 400 distinct bugs, of which about 125 were security critical. Um, probably any one of these bugs would have been headline news on all your favorite tech sites. <laughs> um, and they found 125 of these um, with really just a, a couple engineers' effort. Um, and, you know, 2,000 cores sounds like a lot, but it is a, a resource that's available to any of us on AWS or Azure. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, when, when it is worthwhile to find bugs in your system, um, it, this is just a highly efficient tool for doing it. So let's go over to a different subject that you queued up on at the very beginning. And you were talking about getting... Uh, more communication with your team using this technique. And, and I like this perspective because um, I've always uh, tried from the UI, UX perspective to get more communication in the software development process. You're talking about getting more communication in the software development process through uh, finding bugs and QA and whatnot. So, so tell us a little more. So as I think as anybody who um, has written a unit test knows, um, there, you can have code that is designed to be testable, and you can have code that is difficult to unit test because of its design. And I think that that applies to testing at other scopes as well. Um, you can design a system that is, um, you know, that, that has features that make it easier to QA, and you can also find design systems that are, that are somewhat difficult to QA. Um, so... One of the things that I think is worthwhile is just to have the interaction between, you know, pen testers and QA professionals and software developers to say, um, how can we not only design a system that, that is something that you can work with, but a, a system that, that you can test in a way that's going to give you confidence in the results that you have? And what, what are some of the ways this helps the team communicate better? Like... Can you give it any... So, so one of the things that I think is, is interesting is that, that we use somewhat different language um, when we talk about testing. Um, one of the things that I've been doing in preparing my last couple talks is running it by some QA professionals mm -hmm. um, who, who, you know, for, for as you might imagine, have some very specific uh, associations when you, when you talk about exploratory testing or ex acceptance testing. Um, 
I, you know, I'm not going to try and speak for them, but I, I definitely got some feedback about, you know, you're using this word in a way that, that I don't understand. Uh, and, you okay. know, when I read your slides, I think this other thing. And so it's been really interesting to, uh, it's made me think about being very specific about, you know, distinguishing testing techniques from reasons you might test. And that, that those are something that, that, that are fairly easy to confuse. And you're finding more common ground for just language to describe what's happening, too, mm -hmm. by yeah. the sounds of it. Yeah, and, it, and, you know, and these are professionals, so they have insights into, into the area of software quality. Um, I think that we have a long way to go in producing quality software. I think that software development as an industry is very much in its sort of, you know, uh, sitting around the, the, the fire, uh, <laughs> the, the, swinging our caveman. It's bats, the Wild West, know. right? Well, yeah, and, and but at the same time, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I, I've uh, read books about the, the natural philosophers of the 1600s and the 1700s who are, you know, inventing what we think of as science today. And, you know, they might say, oh, I'm going to study worms. And, and they would literally be doing research that no one had ever done before, you know, mm -hmm. just, just by looking around them. And in, in a sense, that seems sort of exciting in a time when, you know, scientific experiments are often billions of dollars and, you know, involving teams of thousands of people. But in software quality, I, I think we're kind of still in that natural philosophy stage. You know, we're, we're, we have some sort of ideas or suspicions that might work, and we, we sort of dress them up as best practices. But um, there are different techniques that we can use to achieve similar goals, and I don't think anyone has a really a comprehensive understanding of, um, you know, if if we do things in a certain way, do we have a result that we can depend on? And that that's really what I'm after, is to, how can we raise our game a bit? Um, how can we how can we be confident in, in the, the applications that we're putting out? Yeah, I think you hit an excellent point there. You know, we, we really are in the early days still of software, even though it doesn't seem like it to somebody that's maybe of a newer generation that grown up with it in their hands, um, including myself. I mean, I, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Uh, that's nothing. Uh, software's, you know, as we know, it's been around roughly 50, 60 years, which in the great scheme of things is still nothing, right? Yeah. It's a tiny sliver of time. You're, you mentioned science and, you know, you're, you're talking about a much longer timeline and you think of like um, the uh, industrial revolution and how long it's been, you know, we've been in this phase of that. Uh, and software is just such a small piece of that right now. Uh, we're, we're just in such early days um, of its history that uh, we certainly haven't figured everything out, if hardly anything out yet. Yeah, you know, and it, people joke about how, uh, you know, uh, every year it's a new JavaScript build system and whatnot. <laughs> and and uh, that's true, but it, it, it just says that there are a lot of things remaining to be discovered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, new technologies that were uh, thought of many years ago, but we really didn't have the horsepower to put behind them. Uh, things like machine learning, uh, stuff that falls into the genre of artificial intelligence and uh, much more wide-scale applications than we ever imagined. 
um, and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and buggier <laughs> as we go. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting times. Yeah. But the, at the same time, I feel there is, uh, to some degree, I see some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there are interesting, uh, th there's progress made in fields like, um, you know, SAT solvers and SMT solvers, um, where we are able in some circumstances to prove the behavior of systems and we often don't really know how to how to take that result and turn it into a whole application that works but there there have certainly been a couple of cases of of success with with proving the behavior of software systems and fuzzing is sort of interesting because in contrast to a proof where you are sort of statically analyzing a system and say there is no input for which a certain property doesn't hold. In fuzzing, you're dynamically analyzing the system. You're executing the software instead of looking at its code and you're saying, well, I can't find uh, a case where this property doesn't hold. So it's less of a guarantee, but the results to some degree speak for themselves. Um, like MongoDB has a, an in-house fuzzing system for their mm -hmm. database engine, which they call their most prolific bug finding tool. Um, and the, the interesting thing there is that in comparison to um, a proof system, which is probably graduate level research, PhD level research, um, a, a fuzzer is something that is fairly in, fairly uh, easy to understand. I think mm -hmm. I think uh, you know we, uh, a lot of people are going to come out of a one hour talk and, and pretty much say, okay, I, I get that. Um, but uh, it, it's just it's distinguished by its effectiveness, right? Yeah. So. Talking about you know coming into a one-hour talk and you know having an idea of where to get started uh, for people listening to the show, what what are uh, some good places to get started uh, with some of the things that you're talking about, fuzzing and, and uh, that sort of thing? Sure. Um, well, part of the reason I, I think it's worthwhile to give a talk on this is that the resources are fairly thin. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll tell you where where I've learned the most. Um, one of the most popular fuzzers is called AFL. It's, it stands for American Fuzzy Lop, which is a breed of rabbit. But if you just uh, use your favorite search engine and look for AFL fuzz, um, you will find it. And the author of AFL, Michał Zalewski, has um, a number of documents on his site that explain um, under the hood how AFL works and mm -hmm. what it does. So if you're patient enough to sit down and read through some fairly lengthy text files. I think that, that that's probably the best introduction um, in, ter in terms of just, you know, one place to go. Okay. And uh, where can we find your, your slides? And uh, do you have a blog or, or so, yeah, anything um, like that? Uh, well, two, two answers to that question. Um, my slides are not online now, but they will be online tomorrow at speakerdeck.com slash craigstunts. And my um, blog is www.craigstunts.com. Okay. Uh, we'll definitely put some links in our show notes to those resources so people can find them. Um, I appreciate you making time to be on the show with me. Uh, this is a very interesting topic. Um, hopefully I get some time to come by and uh, check out your session tomorrow at uh, Star Trek 2017. And uh, after we get done with all that fun stuff, we get to go watch Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, so hopefully you'll be at the uh, movie event as well. Uh, thanks for talking to me tonight, Ed. Thanks. Appreciate it.